The scripture reading for today comes from Psalm chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence, his soul hates. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. Upright men will see his face. This is the word of God. Good morning. It's been a while. I've been away uh, years past, but this really feels like it's been a while. We're going into the book uh, of Psalms. Psalms teach us how to pray. Psalms teach us how to praise. It really, they're practical ways of experiencing God and connecting with God. And for the next several weeks, we're going to focus on just one set of psalms that lead us to connect with God during seasons of hardship, times of anxiety, suffering, and darkness. But first, I'm going to give you a little note about the psalms, a little word about the psalms to help you to get Hebrew poetry. First, the first verse of just about every psalm, most uh, psalms, are usually a summary, a summary of the entire psalm, the conclusive summary of the psalm. It's poetry. It's condensed. And so the author wants you to know what he's talking about, what, he's, what he wants to share, what he wants to emphasize up front at the start. So verse 1, we see here, in the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee? The rest of the psalm is usually an elaboration on that summary. But each stanza begins with one line, followed by a line that elaborates the previous point in that previous line, so that the entire psalm is a cascade of thoughts that build up to the summary in verse 1. And today's psalm, it's going to stay with you. It's my hope. It's my prayer that it's going to stay with you in times of trouble, in times of distress, in times of darkness. We're going to walk through the psalm first. And then we're going to glean some very quick applications, three quick applications uh, altogether. We're going to walk through the psalm and then walk through three applications. First, uh, let's walk through the psalm. The first verse tells us that this is a psalm about how to take refuge in God, how to take refuge in the Lord when life is difficult. Verses 1 to 3, it's in quotes, if you notice, and it's a question. Something has happened, and you're not really sure what happened, but it's bad. I mean, it's so bad. Somebody is counseling David. Somebody's telling David, the author of this psalm, like Forrest Gump, run, he says. For look, uh, we're going to go into why. You know, Forrest Gump, dear God, make me a bird so I can fly far, far, far away. That's pretty much what he says in this psalm, right? He says, flee like a bird to your mountain. Flee like a bird. Verse 2 gives us a clue as to why. For look, wicked, the wicked bend their bows. They're in shadows. They're ready. They're ready, they're, they're ready to fire. They're aimed at the heart. Now, we don't know when this psalm was written, 
But David's a king. I mean, he was engaged in civil wars. He was engaged in insurrections. So this really could have been any time in his life. And that's good because that means the context of the psalm is very, very broad. You don't have to narrowly apply this context. You can apply it just about any time there's trouble in your life. The point is, everything's falling apart around David. Verse 3, the foundations are being destroyed. He's losing everything. There are people in shadows. They're ready to take him out. And so he really can't trust anyone. And David is like a sitting duck as a king. Somebody just aimed at him, ready to fire. And so somebody is telling David, flee, because you don't know who to trust. You don't know where to go, who you can run to. Flee like a bird to your mountain. Verse 3 is really the sum of the counsel given to David. When everything's falling apart, when your foundations are pretty much torn down, upended, what can the righteous do? Or really, what would God, what can God do for you at this point? In other words, if you're a good person and everything around you is falling apart, what's the point of doing anything? Because where's God? God can't even really help you. The psalm begins with a counsel without hope, counsel without, this, without uh, any real lasting hope. There's utter despair. And so this is a psalm for desperate people. When the world is caving in around you, David is desperate. And so someone is telling David, you might as well flee to the caves. See, that's most of us in distress. Most of us, we do everything we can with our own strength to hold everything together. But once all hope is lost, we throw our hands up and we run. But this psalm says, when the foundations are destroyed... When everything that you trusted in has failed you, where is God? Because he is silent. So where do you go? What can you depend on? Now think about this. How do you know what you really rely on? How do you know what you really trust? It's when the storm comes. It's when the storm hits. When that, when that rug, that proverbial rug is pulled from under your feet. That's when you know what you really depend on. That's when you know what you're really made of. We all face that one moment, that time, where many times, many moments in our lives, when we say, what's the point of going on? What's the point of enduring all this? What's the point of even trying? That's despair, because it means there's a foundation that's, that you've relied on, that you've stood on, that's been destroyed. Something that you've trusted has been shaken up, and now it's gone, and now it really feels like you've lost everything. Our storms in life show us what we trust, what, what confidence we have that's been built on that. You don't really know until the real suffering hits you. You don't really know what you're made of. You don't really know what you're standing on until something big hits. And what you've been standing on then starts to shake or it starts to break, tear apart, gets upended. And when it does, you want to give up. There was a time not too long ago when I wanted to give up. There were people... They were friends in the shadows, aiming straight for my heart. And I was confused, and I was lost, and I wanted to run, and I wanted to give up. And if it weren't for my wife or, and a few others who really helped me back on my feet, let's put it this way, even I'm surprised after eight years that I'm still here. So without trials, without storms in our lives, we never really know what we're about. In verses 1 to 3, there's panic, there's despair, because everything we relied on has fallen apart. But then verses 4 to 7, 
David answers. And you need to see the tone of David's voice here in this poem because David's view is completely different. It's completely different from the, from the counsel that he was given. Because think about this, both David's counsel and David are seeing the same reality. The walls are caving in around them, and yet there are two wholly diff- different responses. So verse 3 ends a quote. Flee to the mountains like a bird. It ends a quote. But then David begins with a question and asks, how can you say this? How can you say that? In verse 4, David answers and he says, where is the Lord? I'll tell you where the Lord is. He's in his holy temple. He's on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence, his soul hates. What does that mean? There are three very quick applications that I'm going to walk you through here. The first is you have to look. Verses 1 to 3 The counsel is what? Run away. Flee. The foundations have been destroyed. David says, no. I mean, maybe maybe the mountains are your refuge. They're not my refuge because the Lord is my refuge. And so in verse 4, he says, the Lord, when I look, I don't look at this earthly mountain that I can run to. I look at a heavenly mountain. I see the Lord, and the Lord is in his temple, and the Lord is sitting on his heavenly throne. In other words, when I look to the Lord, I don't see him fleeing. He's not running away. He's not falling apart. I don't see the Lord in panic. The Lord is not in despair. In fact, he's seated regally, royally. He hasn't gone anywhere, and he's in control. By the way, all of life is about battling God for control or giving God control. And your suffering, your troubles reveal who you believe is really in charge. David says, God is in the temple and he's on the throne. You see, the temple is where priests reside. Priests act as our representatives to God. But in the temple, priests taught, priests counsel. God on the throne also means that the king, he's a king, and a king has power. God in the temple means that the king is wise. God on the throne means that the king is powerful. You see that? David's saying, my God is not only my counselor, he's not only my wisdom, but he is my king. All of life is looking at who God is, looking at God, remembering God, his wisdom, his character, his promise, his power. When you see that, even when everything's falling apart, You have a God that is all-powerful to stop the bleeding. But even if he doesn't stop the bleeding, then he must know something because he's all-wise. He must know something that we don't know. That's the end of the battle for control. That's the end of the battle for control. It's the end of complaining. It's the end of hopelessness and despair. You see that? Do you have a God that's wiser than you? Do you have a God that's more powerful than you? He has to be. Otherwise, that's where the panic comes from. Because, that, because if God's not in control, then no one's in control. You're not in control. God's not in control. Storms show us how powerful uh, the world around us, how dangerous the world around us is, and how powerless we are. And so if God isn't in control, then no one's in control. And your wisdom is telling you that there's no way out of this mess. So the conventional wisdom tells you, flee. Flee like a bird. Go into a cave. You got to look. 
you got to remember the wisdom and the power of God. Secondly, you need to examine. You need to examine yourself. If God is the true king, then taking refuge in him means that you have to give up control. You have to surrender. If God is a wise king, then taking refuge in him means that you are learning from his wisdom. What does that mean? In verse 4, David says, God observes us. God examines us. God examines his people. And then in verse 5, he says, the Lord examines the righteous, but he hates the wicked. Now, this is really, really important. What's the opposite of wicked? Righteous. But in this passage, then what's the opposite of hate? The text doesn't say, the Lord loves the righteous, but hates the wicked. He doesn't say that. He says, the Lord examines the righteous and hates the wicked. You get it? God hates the violent. God hates the wicked. But he examines the righteous. The actual word in Hebrew is the word test. The Lord, our king, tests those he loves. That's how he loves us. He tests us. Now, listen to this. I used to think that that meant that God gives us hard tests like some cruel professor giving impossible questions on an exam that we absolutely cannot pass just to see how we'd respond. But if that's the case, then number one, God's not all wise because he doesn't really even know how we'd answer and he doesn't really know us that well. What's the real purpose of a test? Because that's the word that's being used here. It's not so that the professor would know what you know. The professor knows everything that you're being tested on. It's so that you would know what you know. Tests reveal what you know. They're painful. It's suffering. It's anxiety driving. It's stressful. But without tests, we don't learn. Without tests, we don't apply. Without tests, you won't grow. Tests show you what you know, and tests show you what you do not know. Tests show you what you believe, and they show you what you don't believe. Tests reveal the areas in our lives that are weak, that we need to continue to work on. David says, I get it. It looks like the foundations around me are being destroyed. The walls of life are caving in around me. There are people out there lurking in the shadows, aiming for my heart with their arrows, already cocked and ready to go. But God is using this as a test to examine me so that I will know what I truly stand on and what I really believe because I trust that God loves me. Now, pastor, isn't that a stretch? I mean, I don't see the word love in any of this. Where is the word love here? It's there. You're just overlooking it. But David is actually screaming the word at you. And it's in the word, the Lord. It's usually written in your Bibles in capital letters, all caps. You know why? Because it's not just your quintessential word for God, like Adonai or Elohim. That word, Lord, that's capitalized in all caps, is the actual, it's a very special word, Yahweh. It's a, it's a way that you refer to God only among people who are truly loved by God, who have a deep, personal, active relationship with him. Only they would use that word. Derek Kidner is probably one of the best commentators and scholars on the book of Psalms, in my opinion. And uh, 
he says that this word that David uses, Lord, is, that, is really at the heart of the sentence. And it's emphasized in verse 4 as the turning point of the entire passage. And it's repeated throughout the psalm from here on in. It's a word that represents the love of God, the faithfulness of God, the commitment of God for his people, the compassion of God, and the enduring, unfailing love that reaches to the heavens a way that only God can love his people. And David says, that Lord is giving us a test. In verse 6, to the wicked, yes, he hates them. That means he's going to judge them. He's going to punish it. He's going to punish their injustice. He's going to punish their oppression someday. He's, going to pu- he's not going to let a single evil, a single sin go. But you, he hasn't left. He hasn't abandoned. He's still in the temple. He hasn't run. He's not stressed. He's not, he's not freaking out. He's on his throne, ruling as he's always ruled. And he loves you, and so he's examining you. And unlike some professors, he's not cruel. In fact, he's a good shepherd. We need these tests in our lives. We need these tests so that we will mature. We need these tests so that we would know what we really believe. If your foundations are being destroyed, if everything around you is falling apart, it means that you trusted in the wrong thing. You believed in the wrong thing. You relied on weaker foundations that were not meant to carry the burden that you are about to place on these things or that you have been placing on these things. But God, he's still on the throne. He can carry it all. So sometimes tests show you that there's a flaw in how you're trusting God. Even if you think you believe because there are some flaws in our belief that, are just, that, that just really mess us up. And our suffering reveals that. Sometimes tests show us that there's a flaw in how you view yourself. Maybe there's a pride in you. Maybe there's a personality defect in you. Maybe there's an, ang- there's an anger in you, a bitterness. Maybe there's an envy that's drowning you, sinking you. Sometimes tests reveal things that you relied on and leaned on as a foundation. And, uh, and now that foundation is eroding. In fact, it's collapsed altogether. And you want to run away because you realize that even though you say you trusted the Lord, when troubles come, you really trust in your bank account. You really trust in your status. Or you really trust in that one person, that one person as your hope. You really trust in your family or children. And when those things are eroding away or taking away or, or, or disturbed or disrupted, you want to disappear. You want to hide away in your cave. It's not that what you trusted in was so bad. It's that you trusted and you desired those things too much. That it's distanced yourself from God, who is on the throne, in the temple, ruling. And so the more we distance ourselves from God, we are inviting every bad error. We are inviting every every danger because ultimately we're still battling him for control. You want to take refuge in the Lord? You want to take refuge in God as your personal God? Then you have to start to see your troubles really as tests to get you to stop coming to God on your own terms, but to come to God on his terms. So instead of coming to God with your own agenda, but to come to God as the agenda, as the primary agenda. You've got to stop going to God for things in your life, but go to God for more of God in your life. And so you have to look to the mountain where God is. 
You have to examine deeper into yourself. And thirdly, this psalm teaches us to behold. What's the last thing that David says? For the Lord loves the righteous. For the Lord is righteous, loves justice. Upright men see his face. There's a future perspective and a now perspective here in this verse. There's an already perspective and a not yet perspective in this verse. Upright men will see his face. The Lord loves justice. Upright men will see his face. It's a promise. David knows that one day we will behold the true presence and face and intimacy of God unhindered by our sin, unhindered by uh, any anxiety, unhindered by our guilt, unhindered by pride or fear, trouble, suffering. One day there will be no more sin. There will be no more suffering, no more pain. But right now, in the trouble... David's saying, you can still know that intimacy. You can still see and experience the presence of God. How do you do that? You have to look to Christ. You have to behold Jesus Christ. For David, everything has fallen apart. Everything is shaken up. In the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, the author says, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us worship God with reverence and all. What he's saying that, e- what he means is that even though life may be falling apart, it's just a test because we are receiving an unshakable, unbreakable kingdom. How? Because Jesus Christ went up the mountain. Jesus Christ went to the hill. Not to flee from destruction, but to absorb destruction. He climbed a hill to Calvary. And there, Everything fell apart. On the cross, the sky grew dark, and there was an earthquake, a shaking, a quaking, and the rocks split. The temple curtain, in fact, tore in two from top to bottom. That means that even the foundation of the temple shook. And on the cross, Jesus' body was just ripped apart. It was falling apart. The ground was torn. The temple was torn. Jesus' body was torn. Even the foundation of the temple shook. We saw that, right? Friends, his friends had abandoned him. The religious community rejected him. The government walked away, turned their backs on him. Everything was falling apart. But then he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, what he was crying out, what he was saying was that God himself had turned his face away from me. My ultimate foundation has been pulled from underneath me. It's gone. And yet he did not flee. Why? He was paying the penalty for our sins. The righteous son of God was being examined by God on the cross. His foundations had fallen apart. They'd been destroyed so that he could become the rock of our foundation and salvation. A rock that could never be destroyed. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross. Behold my sin upon his shoulders. Behold, it doesn't take any work to behold. It doesn't take any will or any, any work or strength to behold something. You just look. 
when you behold the cross of Jesus, you see that he endured the ultimate test. And what do you see? You see what Jesus believed. You see what Jesus trusted because even as God had turned his face away, forensically, that's what was happening. God had turned his face away from Jesus. He still calls him, my God, my God. He really believes God. He really trusted God. He trusted, he obeyed, and as a result, he endured every pain on the cross until the last drop, the last breath that he had for us. He passed the ultimate test. There's the love of God. There's the love of Christ, and he did it for you. When we see that Jesus endured the ultimate test, the only test that would truly ruin any of us because of our sin, and he passed, we can endure every small test in our lives because those tests are merely revealers, mirror uh, images of ourselves to show us which foundations have been shaken in our lives so that we can grow to trust God even more as our counselor and as our king. You gotta take this psalm, you're gonna plant it at the heart of your troubles. What are your foundations? What have you been relying on? Take any trouble. What is it that you are relying on? What is it that, that you've been trusting as your foundation? And then you need to reorient, look to God. Examine yourself. Behold the Son on the cross. Hide yourself in Christ as your refuge. That's prayer. That's going to give you the poise that you need. And it's going to lead you to praise. Let's pray together.